Well, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to today's One Key Idea session on the use and abuse of the Agile Testing Pyramid. I'm Rex Black, president of RBCS, a worldwide testing and quality assurance firm serving clients ranging from small startups to Fortune 20 global enterprises. Since 1994, we have delivered insight and confidence to hundreds of clients around the world. We have a team of international consultants who deliver customized training, consulting, and expert services to companies that are looking to improve their test and quality assurance practices. In keeping with the spirit of the one key idea presentation, short and sweet, we will just jump right into it. A quick note, if you have any questions uh, during the next uh, few minutes, and um, you want to submit them right away, you certainly can do that at any time. Uh, please note, as always, I will be answering them at the end. Okay, so Agile Testing Pyramid. What is this thing anyway? Um, how is it used and abused? The Agile Testing Pyramid um, is a concept that I believe was originated by Mike Cohn, but I might be misattributing it. Um, it's one of the fairly famous um, concepts in Agile, um, and it's uh, right up there with the testing quadrants concept that uh, Brian Merrick came up with. The, the basic idea of the Agile testing pyramid is straightforward. It says that you should try to emphasize lower level tests over upper level tests. So it uses this pyramid metaphor, a visual metaphor to convey that idea. So you see at the bottom, the big uh, longish uh, section, the, the largest area of the pyramid is uh, labeled unit, um, which means that we want to have lots of unit tests, um, lots of automated unit tests. And then we have integration above that, smaller in area, system testing above that, even smaller in area, and then acceptance testing at the top, which is the smallest in area. Uh, now, for those of you who are looking at this going, hmm, let's see, I should calculate the areas and compare them. Um, you're already getting into the territory of one of the abuses of the Agile testing pyramid, which I'll get to later. Um, but the key thing here is that the Agile testing pyramid is a metaphor. Okay. It is a metaphor. It is a way of thinking about your tests, especially your automated tests. Uh, saying, automate lots of lower level tests, automate at the upper level sparingly. <coughs> Excuse me. So, um, we automate unit and integration tests. One of the things we want to make sure we're doing is automating through APIs automating through data layers, automating through network services layers, and so forth. Um, that's usually what's available to us rather than a GUI. Uh, and that's good. Uh, we want to try to do as much automation um, at the API layer, data layers, network services layers, and so forth, rather than working through a GUI. This is true even when you get into the system and acceptance tests. If at all possible, try to avoid going through the GUI. Why? Because the GUI is uh, going to change. And in the face of changes, that will impact the tests. Now, this has been something that's been going on for a long time. Um, when I was uh, working as a test manager in the early 90s, we had Windows, and we had uh, 
other kinds of graphical user interfaces just coming out. And so we got tools. Um, we got Windrunner, which has now evolved into UFT, but actually started as XRunner because it was uh, on the X Windows system, uh, which was a graphical user interface system for um, Unix um, computers. And we had um, Linda Hayes' tool at the time, which I forget the name of, but she's still, still involved in creating um, automated test harnesses. Um, and, and immediately what we discovered uh, back then was we tried to automate through the GUI was, wow, hey, guess what? Um, when the GUI changes, that disrupts the test. And so over the years, various approaches have been developed for that uh, data-driven, keyword-driven automation and so forth, trying to increase the resilience. But still, nevertheless, I mean, it remains a problem. Um, and we get new generations of tools that come out claiming that they fix the problem and they've solved the problem. But, you know, I go to clients all the time and I hear the same stories all the time about what happened with the automated GUI tests, which is they proved too difficult to maintain. So um, when you hear a tool vendor talking about how this time it's different, this time for sure, uh, as uh, Bullwinkle would say, um, healthy dose of skepticism. I would encourage it, a very healthy dose of skepticism, because as a consultant, I talk to people around the world all the time, and I hear you know d different people say the same things over and over again about uh, what went south with their attempts to automate through the GUI. Now, that doesn't mean that automating through these other layers is necessarily going to be all... Uh, uh, Sunset, sunsets and puppies and, and uh, ice cream uh, for sure. But um, your, your odds of, of uh, having this feeling like you're swimming upstream constantly, uh, which is the, the GUI automation problem, or at least less, um, you're not going to be um, the, the, these APIs, the data layers, the network service layers and so forth tend to be more stable. So that's part of one of the great things of the, the test pyramid is it's, it's encouraging you to focus on layers of, or on la levels of testing where the automation layer is likely to be more resilient. Okay. Um, the, another thing that the test pyramid is, is helping with is it's the, the uh, principle of early, early QA and testing, also referred to as shift left these days, or referred to again as shift left. I was on a project where the motto was shift left in 1995. So this is hardly a new phrase. It's just one that's come back. It means the same thing, which is, you know, test as early as possible. Try to detect and remove defects as close as possible to their point of introduction. So that again, great use of the agile testing pyramid to get people thinking about shifting left. Of course, in this picture, it's shift down, uh, which actually means something else that I'll talk about in a later webinar. Um, but uh, um, you get the picture, shifting left in the sense of, of testing earlier in time. Now, that said, all these good things about the Agile testing pyramid, um, that, you know, doesn't mean that it can't be abused. Uh, so for those of you, and I won't, I won't force you to admit it, for those of you when I was going through um, and talking about, you know, the area of the, 
of the segment of the pyramid that's represented by unit integration system acceptance, you know, is, is meant to suggest the uh, volume of tests. Um, yeah, it's it, if you're taking that literally, if you were like going, hmm, you know, I, mean, I think if I calculate the area of that equilateral triangle at the very top there that says acceptance on it, that might actually be equal to or greater than the area of the uh, uh, trapezoid. Is that what that is? I'll call it a trapezoid. Uh, it's certainly not a parallelogram that says system test right underneath it. Um, see, in there, there you go. You're off into one of the abuses if you did that because taking the agile testing pyramid literally is one of the main ways in which it is abused. People start to do calculations and I'll have clients tell me, go, oh, we're following the agile testing pyramid. And I'm like, okay, well, tell me about that. And they're like, well, yeah, we get, you know, 50,000 automated unit tests and 5,000 automated integration tests and 500 automated system tests and 50 automated acceptance tests. So see, you know, each one is a tenth of the other. And I'm like, okay, um, <laughs> you know, I guess that just happened. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. We, we set numerical targets. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about some of the things that are wrong with that kind of thinking. One is that um, it is impossible to compare tests at different levels because they're of very different sizes. What I mean by that is a single system test is very different in size than a single unit test. You think of a unit test, if you're familiar with unit testing, we're talking about a test that covers, oh, I don't know, maybe 10, maybe 20, 30 lines of code. Just taking lines of code as a convenient metric here. You think about a system test, one that does an end-to-end -end test, like maybe it's tests an entire use case, that's going to be covering hundreds of thousands, maybe maybe even a million lines of code, depending on the size of the system. Now, how can you say that a test that covers 10 lines of code can in any way be equated to a test that covers 100,000 lines of code? Well, of course, you can't. And in other ways of trying to, to size those two, in terms of things like number of test conditions covered and so forth, I mean, you, you'd really have to go through a process to get that in a way that was, you know, reliable and, and, and actually meaningful. And to my, in my experience, those people who are tested, taking the testing pyramid literally never do that, never go through any sort of exercise to try to normalize uh, the size, the differing sizes of the test cases. So that's a thing uh, very much not to do with this. Another mistake that gets made in abuse of this is calling something a unit test when it really isn't. I ran into this recently with a client where somebody was telling me about, oh, yeah, unit test, unit test. And I'm like, hmm, that seems a little odd. And you're talking about unit testing because of the role of your test. It's like, so can you clarify for me what you mean by unit test? It's like, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a test that tests a single screen. I said, screen? Um, she said, yes, it's a screen. No, it's like a single input screen. I'm like, okay, well, that's, uh, that's not really what I would call a unit test. Um, I mean, I get that you could, you know, you can have tests at the system level that are fairly small and they're focused on a single screen. Uh, and maybe that's an integration test, depending on where and when it gets run and what the point of the test is. But it's almost certainly not a unit test. So calling stuff a unit test that isn't actually a unit test, you know, a test of the smallest independently testable 
construct in the programming language, either a function or a or a class. Um, you know, you want to make sure that when you're using the phrase unit test, you're actually referring to something that is a real uh, honest God unit test, not something that's, uh, um, you know, a, a system test effectively or an integration test. Okay, so those are a couple of the common uses and uh, abuses, some of the common uses and abuses of the Agile Testing Pyramid. And uh, we'll go to Q&A now. Uh, let's see what we got here. We got a question from Doug. Uh, says, hey, Rex, or Douglas, sorry. Um, hey, Rex, how to handle the high dependency on tools to write automated test cases? Uh, once for traditional, you have low dependency. Um, can does overcome on high costs. Hmm, I'm having a little trouble parsing your sentence here. How, how does one overcome the high cost of the organization? Um, hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, most automated tests are automated using some sort of open source or commercial tool. It's, I mean, it's also possible to automate um, in other ways. Like some of my clients have built-in scripting in their programs and uh, their applications, and so they use that built-in scripting to automate their tests, um, which, you know, is a possibility. Um, but yeah, most of the time you're, you are using a tool now. Um, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, some of the tools can be expensive and you might want to, you know, think about, well, you do need to think very carefully about budget. You need to think about business case and ROI when you're approaching this, this question of automation. But, you know, it might um in my experience with clients the the high the, the cost of tools can be a barrier to entry but it's usually not the reason that an automation effort fails more likely the, the automation efforts are failing because of um automation through the gui as i said which creates uh, maintainability issues or um trying to automate tests that just aren't a good fit for the tools. Another one that I've seen, I saw one of those recently with a client where they, well, last last year, um, they had this tool and it did a bang up job of doing some basic functionality kind of smoke tests um, on code in their code repository. And they had it kind of in, built into their, their delivery pipeline. Um, but when they tried to take with they, the company, the, the, the so the build the build engineers were using this tool for for build purposes to this automated uh, build um, verification test worked great for them. So they said to the QA folks, "Hey, you know, you guys should use this for your automate QA." And they went off and tried to do it. And even though it wasn't working at the GUI, it was working at a lower level. Where they tried to automate things that were were coarser grained than the real small little atomic transactions that were automated in the build verification test when they tried to automate the bigger stuff actual use cases it the, the test just would not that were not maintainable um so they, they ended up expending a huge amount of effort trying to make it work because it was a management directive of hey we need to we need to do more automation 
and then it ended up just kind of collapsing on them. Um, and so, you know, I'm laughing, but it really wasn't anything particularly funny about it. It was a lot of waste of time and energy. And of course, it that kind of thing, when it happens, ends up breeding a certain amount of cynicism on, uh, uh, you know, future attempts to automate and organizations often won't want to do that. Um, so to, to come back to your question, Douglas, I, I don't think that, the, I mean, the cost, the cost is an issue that must be considered uh, at upfront. So it can be a barrier to entry. And if so, then you need to find a tool that is actually going to fit what your costs are that are available. And given the uh, tremendous amount of open source tools that are out and about, um, you know, you really shouldn't have a problem finding a tool. I mean, I, I worked with a client a couple of years ago to help them do a, um, evaluation of a test management tool. And even excluding open source, which they, they insisted that we do, that we exclude open source because they said they had to have commercial support. I was able to find something like 50 potential tools, uh, of which about 25 or so um, actually met most of their requirements. And they had about 100 requirements. And we had four, three or four that made it to the short list. So, you know, there's a lot of options out there. And just, you know, if you're like, oh, yeah, well, I, I went to this conference and I saw this tool and like, no, that's not what that's not. That should not be the way you make this decision. You want to start with your requirements and constraints. When it costs a constraint, Douglas, then so be it. And then go off and do careful research. Um, I've had clients tell me stories about going to conferences and getting talked into buying tools by a tool vendor salesperson who was a great salesperson. And I, you know, I wish, wish I could find salespeople that were that good <laughs> that um, then uh, talked, um, talked them into um, making some uh, um, purchases that ended up being not, uh, um, not something that was actually going to fit. Now I may have cracked there about, wish I could find salespeople that good. I mean, that's, that's actually, I'm being very sarcastic. Um, you know, to me, a good salesperson helps somebody buy something that they actually need, doesn't talk them into buying something that they, that they don't need and that won't work for them. Um, but some of that stuff does happen. All right. I got a question from Madhu. Um, unit testing is the responsibility of developers, right? Hmm. Well, it could be. Um, it often is. Uh, but we have clients that are using agile development methods and they, um, sometimes involve their testers in the, the, uh, development and execution of the unit tests, uh, in, in possibly in some sort of pairing, um, function with the, with the developers. Um, a lot of developers don't actually have a really good grasp of, code coverage and what code coverage is uh, and uh, the different code coverage metrics and what would constitute adequate coverage of the of the software. So a professional developer or professional tester, excuse me, who's got a, a technical bet, sometimes uh, called an SDET, software development engineer and test, or a development tester or software engineer and test, S, set, um, these, these people can get involved and actually, uh, add a lot of value to the unit testing process by making sure that the uh, coverage is adequate. So, um, 
saying, yeah, you know, the unit testing that's belongs to the developers. Um, you know, certainly in the in the sort of traditional organizational models, where it's kind of you're kind of siloed. It, yeah, definitely like that, but uh, uh, not necessarily like that um, with with agile. Okay, very good. So we're, we're right on uh, track here. I've got a couple more questions coming in, so let's get a, get a couple more, and then we'll uh, we'll um, wind it down. So I got a question from Mary, who says uh, testing the computational layer often requires using the GUI to provide data, or am I missing something? Um, well, no. I mean, the, the, you say computational layer, and you think you're talking about the business logic there. I think that's what I would call it. Um, it, depending on the way that the, that the, um, software is architected, there may very well be APIs that you can use or, um, service interfaces, service layers, data, data layers and so forth that you can use to load the data. Um, now this is too long a digression to go into, um, you know, one key idea session, but, I did a webinar earlier this year, I think, uh, and it was also as a keynote that I gave at um, uh, Testing Dive um, Conference in Krakow on non-GUI test automation. So I would encourage you, Mary, to go out to the RBCS YouTube channel. You see the coordinates right there at the bottom of your screen. Go out there and find that non-GUI test automation uh, talk that I gave, as I said, in, in, in Krakow and give that a listen. A question from Donald here. We've used open source slash free automation tools and professional slash commercial tools. And the difference is like old DOS compared to uh, Windows 10. The free tools we've used require much coder supplementation and patches and are harder to use. Hmm. Well, Donald, I, you know, that's your your experience, and who am I just to to say your experience is, is invalid? But I've got other clients that have told me that they've had great success using open source tools. Um, you know, certainly Selenium is an incredibly popular tool these days, and, and we have a lot of clients that are that are using it. Um, uh, the the so called X unit frameworks. Um, we have a lot of clients that use those N unit for for .NET and uh, JUnit for Java and so forth, and those are open source. So, um, I mean, I think the, the main thing here is, is, I think, just, you know, know your requirements and know your constraints and um, select tools that, that meet those. And it sounds like you had some bad luck with somebody promoting perhaps an open source or free tool that uh, really wasn't a good fit to begin with based on the the skill set of your staff. And that happens without a doubt. Skills, it's inadequate skill set or mismatch of uh, the skill set um, is uh, is definitely right up there with, you know, using, using the wrong tool for the job with respect to uh, stuff that kills test automation efforts. So Manu has a funny question here. When do we know who the lucky winner is to get access to one of our e-learning courses? I think you mean one of uh, my e-learning courses, RBCS e-learning courses. Uh, well, the, the drawing happens within a few days. 
So stay tuned. It, it could be you. And by the way, I think you may notice that we've had people that have won, have won twice. Um, it's happened. So, uh, yeah, keep coming back. And of course, it's only for attendees. We don't, uh, registrants don't get, um, don't get drawn. All righty. So I hope you enjoyed this free webinar from RBCS. Uh, today is a special day because there'll be another one coming up in about 30 minutes on the brand new Foundation 2018 syllabus. So uh, if you haven't already registered for that, there's still time. You can you can go and register. Uh, go to the rbcs-us.com website and go to the training page. You'll see uh, upcoming webinars, so you can do that. We do these free webinars as a service to the software testing community because at RBCS, we are a not-just-for-profit company. That said, if you enjoy our free webinars and feel that they demonstrate solid insights into the kinds of testing challenges you face, please, please, please make RBCS your preferred software testing vendor for any and all expert services, consulting, or training. We're happy to provide a quote for any such help you might need. Contact us, info at rbcs-us.com. That ends the webinar. Thanks to everybody for participating today, and uh, maybe I'll see some of you back in 30 minutes.